Welcome to the Bite Size Book Club podcast, She Well Read. We're your hosts, Alana and Samra, and we're two black girls in our mid-20s who are on a journey to get back into reading. Our goal is to encourage women to not only read any and everything, but to also read at your own pace. Each episode, we take a bite-sized approach to reading by breaking down one chapter of a book and diving into a multitude of topics. We see reading as a source of empowerment and want to bring people together through shared experiences and provide a platform that promotes reading as a source of empowerment. Thanks for being here and let's get on to the show. Hey, well-read baddies. Welcome to another episode of She Well Read. I'm Alana. And I'm Samra. And today we have some very special guests on the show today. We were actually telling them this is the only the second time in She Well Read history that we've had some men on this show, y'all. And some of y'all have asked about it. So here you go. Here you go. Damn. Damn, here you go. <laughs> No, we're so honored, and we need a little bit of balance, okay? Balance, yes, yes, nice balance. It's an honor to represent our Y chromosomes here. The the here you go damn is pretty funny. I give y'all that. That's that's pretty. Ah. That's pretty good. I was about to say, don't take us seriously. We are very silly over here. True, true. But that, that's a big thing. And hopefully you guys can represent your your chromosomes well, because mm-hmm. we know there's a lot of representation in other places, other podcasts even, where they're just going all the way. Mm-hmm. And we love that for them. But over here... <laughs> What did, what did I almost say? Not on my watch. <laughs> <laughs> on this side of Beyonce's internet, we are, we're thankful for y'all. We're thankful. I'm thankful for all of you. And I'm in touch with my inner feminine. So I'll, I'll try and be well-rounded. <laughs> okay. You love we to all, see we it. all have that. Exactly. True. Yes. That's a real thing. We're going to have a great time. But before we go any further, we today we are interviewing the authors of the new book. And this book actually came out February 6th. So that was yesterday. And yesterday. it is called, yes, congratulations on that also. That's very Thank exciting. You. Thank you. Um, and I have my lovely, cu- like my lovely book that I hold she got it, in my heart now, right here in front of me. It's so nice too, I would just like to say. It's the perfect coffee table book. I don't know if that was intentional, but it is. Thank you very um, much. Yes, absolutely. And the title for you all, it is Ghosts of Segregation, American Racism Hidden in Plain Sight. And today we have the photographer of this book, who is Richard, otherwise known as I will be saying Rich, Frischman. And the essays are by B. Brian Foster. And I will just be saying Brian for the rest of the interview. Doctor... <laughs> Doctor, ooh, <laughs> you caught me, Doctor. Bri- excuse me, yes, Doctor Brian Foster, <laughs> and the forward by Imani Perry. So let's get into it. Would you guys please introduce yourselves to our audience? Yeah, well, Rich, you want to go first? Well, okay, I guess so. My name's Rich Frischman. I I am the photographer in this project and I feel very fortunate to be working with Brian and be talking with Samra and Alana. I took up photography as a kid and by the time I graduated college I was fully committed to being a photojournalist. I I was intrigued with newspapers and the old life magazine as I was growing up and I found visuals to be an incredibly powerful way to convey what life was about. And this project is somewhat of a departure for me because in the past I've almost always photographed people, but I, I felt better about photographing place when I, when I began this project. And I think it, it forces us to look at history in a different way than if we're looking at a unique individual. There you have it. You can (laughs) ask me anything. 
No, that was perfect. That was that was really great. And we're we're gonna get more into that too. But Brian, if you would please go ahead and do your introduction as well. Sure. Brian Foster, associate professor of sociology at the University of Virginia. Been writing all my life. I was talking about the book earlier today with the folks at Boston College and was was kind of making this this similar point where ever I grew up the countryest of country boys and by the time I was 12 or you know a teenager I'm outside I'm playing sports I'm doing all the things but I'm also writing a lot and and developing a love of language of reading and thinking and ideas and questions and 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 yeah you know it's a longer story but that that interest in language and writing took me it's why I went and got a PhD it's why I do or it's why I work in the field that I work in and uh, yeah, ghosts of this was a, it, you know, it's a it's a heavy topic with like some heavy heavy histories, and so it wasn't an easy, it, it, you know, it wasn't the easiest kind of project to take on, but you know, important. I think as difficult as the subject matter is, I think it's that much more important. So, like Rich said, happy to to be here to talk about it. Awesome. Thank you. Yes. And again, thank you both for being here with us today. Now, something that I was very curious about, which I think I read a little bit on it, but I wanted to for you all to have a chance to elaborate. How did you all connect with one another? Well, in 2016, when I was when I photographed the one of the first pictures in the book, I was I had been involved in kind of exploring how our culture is evident in our built environment in in places and i was at that time photographing more sanguine upbeat things architecturally but in 2016 i i realized that this nostalgia that i had was a a privilege that was not shared by everybody. And I was concerned about things that were happening in the world. I decided I, to turn my attention to um, racism because I saw, I saw that as being unfortunately reinvigorated in America. And I grew up in the 50s and 60s when the modern civil rights movement was really in its ascendancy and i my parents were real strong advocates for equality and for activism they were they came from activist parents themselves and so i i started photographing locations that embodied the history of racism and obviously it's a current event as much as past tense history but i was shooting it just pretty much for my own purposes i for museums that's where i was presenting my work primarily it was not a book but when it grew into something that had so much educational potential, I thought that it could be a book. And I I ended up having, finding a literary agent, or they found me, actually. And we entered in discu- into discussion. And David Black, our agent, knew Brian, knew of Brian, of Brian's work. I don't know if you guys had already actually met, but David suggested that I read I Don't Like the Blues because Brian's philosophy in in part is that place does hold the spirits and the history of events and people and that was just how I felt, except I I was exploring it visually. And in reading Brian's work, I realized he would be the greatest partner. I knew that I couldn't tell this story alone. Certainly as a book, I I needed somebody who could join me. And uh, Brian brings this project to a, an entirely different level. 
And I think that his writing and my photography really support each other. I I appreciate it as always. I appreciate all that, Rich. And, you know, this, this probably sounds a little bit conceited, but I wouldn't be on the project if your work wasn't what it is. Like you do very impressive work. And as I say in the acknowledgements, you do it with the seriousness that came across to me. So I got that call from David Black about the opportunity and I, Rich, I probably am going to say this every time we talk about the book. Anytime there's an opportunity to do something with some white folks and it has to do with the racial history of the U.S., I'm skeptical. And that was the case this go around. But uh, but yeah, so after after checking out some of Rich's work and hearing how he talked about the work and seeing the amount of time and effort that so very clearly went into the work. Again, he had already been taking photos that are a part of the collection for a few years ahead of when I came on board. And so, yeah, that that's generally it. You know, it's a, uh, uh, it's a, I think aesthetically, right. It's kind of a different type of pet. Rich, Rich is old enough to be, if my dad was still living, Rich would be him and Rich would be the same age. Rich, you know, you grew up in Chicago, white Jewish man from Chicago, black country boy from the South. And so, you know, it's always, it's interesting to get this question, which is a typical question you get for like a collaborative project. But I do, I do think for us, Rich, it's, it's a little layered, but uh, yeah, that's a little bit of, of how, how we kind of met on the, you know, in terms of the collaboration on the project. No, that's amazing, actually. And that question is something Sam and I get often too. And we always do that thing of like, I would not be here if it wasn't for her. And she's like, well, I would not be here if it wasn't for her type of thing. So when you were saying that, I was like, yeah, they sound like us. <laughs> well, yeah, I, I, yeah, I tell Rich, I have told Rich. So anytime Rich does, like he go down that, that path, I try to, anyway, I do. I try to send it right back at him. Deserves their flowers. Yeah. Well, that's amazing. And so this question is kind of for Rich mainly, but Brian, feel free to jump in here. So you kind of already talked about the journey and embarking on this journey and how you kind of got there when creating this book, which again, the the name, I don't know whose idea it was, but Chef's Kiss, because as soon as I read <laughs> The Ghost, I was like, ooh, spooky season. Hello? <laughs> But it it was just so intriguing and it really brought me into it. And so as you're making this journey of the ghosts of segregation, if you will, uh, what was the most surprising discovery that you made during your travels and getting this photography? Well, it was in 2019. I was looking for some local places that had historic racial significance. And I already knew that Jim Crow and segregation extended all across the the United States. And but I was surprised that even here in Seattle there was still the the vestige of a segregated entrance. And it was not only surprising to hear that, but I, when I looked at it online, where where it was located, I realized that I had stood outside this segregated entrance, this enigmatic black door, so many times waiting to go into the theater. Uh, I always thought it was a service entrance, as does probably everybody else in Seattle. And so from, you know, from 1977 to about 85, I was just naive. And by 2019, when I discovered this, I I felt I have to really emphasize how the, the ghosts of segregation are all across the United States. And it wasn't much of a picture initially. Unfortunately, by the summer of 2020, it was a a really profound picture. George Floyd had been murdered, and the Black Lives Matter movement had gained more and more traction, and it was on the marquee of the theater. Black Lives Matter, 
right in the same sort of vista that you would see the segregated entrance. So it became visually dramatic. And that was the most surprising thing to me. Just, I, you know, I was just so blissfully naive. I think, you know, Seattle's progressive. Well, it is, but it, it hasn't always been, and it isn't progressive enough. This, this issue of racism exists in so many ways, even here. And I want to acknowledge that. I want to make people think about it because we have a role. Uh, we have a role in either perpetuating it or resolving it. And I thought as a photographer, the best I can do is offer visual evidence. And that's how I began this, really, the the sense of responsibility to provide visual evidence. That was just really moving, and it reminded me of a few lines in the book that I read, one being in the foreword, where it says that, and this is a quote from Malcolm X, and not necessarily a quote, but just a summaration of what he said. And it says, everything in south of Canada is the south, which I thought was really a great picture of how unified we all are as a country, you know, no matter where we're, where we're at in the country, even though growing up being from the South, we do feel like, oh, almost ashamed of like our, the like region that we're from when we talk to people from the North per se, or the West and they have an idea of what it was like to live in the South or what it, what it must be like. And a lot of times the idea is just, you know, black and white pictures that they've seen in textbooks. And so seeing that, first of all, that the pictures are in color makes it that more, that much more real. And so I really love seeing that. And then the fact that they're present day, like you said, that contrast of where we are now versus, you know, the doors that are still there and the landscape's testimony, as it says in the photographer's note, of the racism that is here today is just truly, as you said, dramatic and just, it, it's it's just really insane to see and scary. And it just goes to show you like how much things can change yet stay the same and how we consistently have to do the work and continue doing the work because it's a, it's definitely a resistance against something that has been here for much longer than any of us have been. So if, if I could jump in on that, I, I really appreciated that line from Dr. Perry as well, which is kind of a quote from Malcolm X, Ballad of the Bullet. He was, he was traveling across, or I'll say he was traveling across several cities in the country delivering those remarks. And, and that point about if you, you know, if you south of the Canadian border, you south, is I think it's, it's echoing that point about a changing same. So, right, so like your comment was about, you know, time has passed. And we would imagine that things would have changed as time has passed. But it's kind of, you know, if you squint and, you know, look in the right places, it's kind of the same. This is a similar idea about the, you know, if you south of the border, you south. That I, I think that's a specific comment about the experience of like the everyday experiences and structural impacts of racism. They might look different in Seattle or Chicago or Boston, or whatever suburban, non-Southern city that you want to name, they may not have a heavy accent. They may not. They may not hold that R in the same way. But if we look at like so, like any number of outcomes, if we look at how easy it is for people to, you know, people want to buy a house. How easy is that for Black and other minoritized communities, not just in Mississippi, but elsewhere? 
you know, in these other, as Dr. Perry says in the forward, satellites of the South. If we are uncomfortable calling, you know, Kentucky or 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 L.A. or Seattle, if we uncomfortable calling those places the South into this idea, satellites of the South, I think works well, because, again, it's like a reference to, you know, in in 1964, this is really in a at, at like a very tense moment in what many of us call the civil rights movement, you know, the four girls are murdered in this explosion at the 16th Street Baptist Church. And, and Dr. King is arrested and Medgar Evers is assassinated. This is in 1963. And, and so in 64, you hear a lot from a lot of the, as I say, in some places, capital I important black folks. You hear from Malcolm X, you hear from James Baldwin, you hear from Nina Simone and so forth. And what you hear is you hear a lot of anger and pain. You hear love and intimacy. And you hear this comment about eh, even when you're not in the South, sometimes it feels like the South. James Baldwin says the same thing about uh, he spent some time in Charlotte, North Carolina. He spent some time in San Francisco. And um, and there's a comment that he says in of his time in San Francisco. And I'm going to wrap up because I feel like I was talk I'm talking a little bit kind of going a little long but 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 in in uh, he's reflecting on his time in san francisco and commenting on this is in 64 commenting on the bombing of the 16th street baptist church in 63 and he goes and you can tell in the writing that it's like he was pounding the table there's an authority he's like know this there is no moral distance he's like birmingham is just an incident meaning it's a particular manifestation of a generalized phenomenon that you can find from coast to coast, from north to south. He's like, Birmingham is just an incident or, or is just an, I think he said an incident. But know this, there is no moral distance between Birmingham and I think he said San Francisco or he may have said some other reference to the not south. Um, and so just to say, I think that's a really, you know, that's a, I think that's a very specific and I think really important comment to make in a pro, you know, for a project like this, which you hear segregation and you probably do think of something or another related to the South, whether it's a story, a piece of history, or you see the state of Mississippi, you know, Rich spent a lot of time across the, you know, all across the country. And, and, and I appreciate that that's that that's referenced, that that's referenced early on. Yeah. And kind of piggybacking off of all of that, where it's like, yes, maybe a like a lot of what you typically hear about in the incidences were in the South, but it was truly everywhere. Like there was nowhere you could go in the United States or otherwise where racism and segregation was not a thing. So kind of, again, that idea that Samra started us off with of like, it's not a flex that you're saying you're from the north let's be honest like and I, I feel like sometimes that's what people try to make it seem like like oh i wasn't from the south and it was really bad down there and you know us in the north like it really wasn't that bad it's like you're downgrading the situation and low-key making it even worse and now you're the problem <laughs> also I, I really feel like like that that is that has been my experience as somebody who is thickly from mississippi and for whom like that is a point of deep pride. And, you know, I say it as often and as loudly as I can. I hear so much. This is not even like it me reading between the lines. I hear so many overt, explicit comments that seek to put this distance between the deep south, which is what most most folks typically when they do this distinction, it's like East Texas, not all of Texas. Louisiana kind of don't really people when think they think Louisiana they think New Orleans and so maybe that kind of gets some separation. Then it's like Arkansas, definitely Mississippi, definitely Bama, get some Georgia. So it's like deep south, right? And it's just it's a common experience for me as somebody you know maybe I'm in mostly definitely not in mostly like white collar spaces, but I'm in academe also. I do a lot of field work in what I call the real world, and so yeah, just to say like. That's not a straw man to to make this point about these distinctions being still being like common. I am surprised at how common that north south kind of idea is. And, and I could say more, but 
So yeah, just just piggybacking off of that. I'll just jump in and say more then because it's the way that that is a metaphor for the way that, I don't know, it must be a human condition of how we like to separate ourselves and pretend that we are so far away from whatever it was that we don't want to think about just like to make ourselves feel better. And I think... I don't know if you it was you that said it, but but someone said nostalgia is a drug to me recently. Oh, I, I know who it was. It was in my Instagram DMs. <laughs> there was this trend. There was this trend where we were all posting our 21-year-old selves. And, you know, we can get really into it. Some people posted one picture. Some people, they said, I'm here. I'm going to post 12 more pictures because this was this is who I was, you know what I mean? And sometimes we like to revel in that. And it it is a drug. Like it's a form of dissociating from what we are going through right now in the present and a way of distracting ourselves. And I think about all of the remakes that are being made and just this drug that Hollywood is pushing on us of nostalgia. And they want to do these remakes and make it more diverse when it wasn't really actually that diverse, but there has to be a person of color that is a doctor in this scene because there are no black people in this story, to be honest with you. So they are trying to like make it make it so that we can all participate in this nostalgia. And it was you, Rich, that said it because you said the fact that like for you and I think for so many white people, they want to escape in these like, ideas of the 50s and the 60s and before that even the the fucking 20s like we all love these specific parts even me like I'd love to go escape into the 70s or the 60s like that does seem fun but this nostalgia bait version of it that's in my head because of like what I've been fed and so your book it comes in direct like contrast to this and it almost like bombs the entire thing like you your book took a shit on all the history books that I was taught from in the southeast and I just am so thankful that we can see this and the fact that going back to the pics like the fact that they are in color is so much more somehow graphic than and the fact that they're empty like there are no people you can't distract yourself with like there was a girl who looks just like me in that picture and she looks so pretty in that dress, which is so seventies or so, you know what I mean? You see these idealized pictures and now you can like AI can make even better pictures of black people existing in these times. And even that in itself is a distraction. And so what you guys are doing here, accompanying the pictures with the words that just continue to like wreck you page after page it's so iconic i have to i have to jump in rich i you you find your way back in too but i I just you 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 hit on two good points that (laughs) i really want to comment on i think i think number one it's interesting to hear how impactful seeing the, the photos in color are or even just in general, seeing the photos are, I think I said this today or in a recent conversation about the project. I am a, an aggressive pragmatist. I'm a social scientist, which means I'm also about evidence and data. And, and we hear a lot, especially in conversations around racism, we hear, you know, and, and see what has been an effective tactic which is to discredit, discredit, discredit. Critical race theory is like witchcraft if you listen to the wrong podcast. You know, Toni Morrison's Beloved does not belong in the in high school libraries if you listen to how some primarily white, as I, you know, have been reading the stories, parents would, would say. And, and so the comment that I was referencing is like, we didn't draw the pictures. We didn't make them up. The, the histories are the histories, so it's it's not fiction. And so to me, to be able to unfurl 100, and you said 129 photos, Rich. Mm-hmm. To be yeah. able to unfurl 129, 129 vivid photographs that are of actual places 
And those places are not just in the deep South and they reflect actual histories to me is, is a point to emphasize. And the second piece, Rich, you said this a couple of times that nostalgia is a privilege. And, and I do agree that it is for the privileged party when, depending on the dynamic that we're talking about. And so on matters of gender inequality and so forth, it's a privilege to be, it's, it's a privilege to be a man and to reflect back on you fill in the blank. To me, the other side of privilege is responsibility, which is what I feel with respect to the type of nostalgia that this project stirred up for me, right? Where I'm thinking a lot about my family's stories. All my grandparents were sharecroppers. All my people are from Northeast Mississippi. And so like these very real histories that are captured in the very real photo or the photographs of the very real places are histories that touch my grandmother and my grandfather and so forth. And and so there is a nostalgia there for me. I think empty nostalgia or symbolic nostalgia, which is what you are referring to, is, you know, is a drug that that I do think can be counterproductive. But like a real and responsible nostalgia to me, that can be empowering, not easy. Right. Like there's a lot of nostalgia around the memories that I have of my grandmother, but I can't access that nostalgia without also addressing the history that surrounds what her reality was. This is my last point on this topic. The one of my one of my mentors and somebody who I think really highly of, Kiese Lehman. He's got this book, Long Division. And it's about these black kids from Mississippi who time travel. And I think, you know, this idea of time travel where you're going back in time, it's 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 akin for me to the experience of uh, dealing with and thinking through these these photos where, you know, if I go back to 1996, it's going to be a lot of like my grandma going to still be there and I'm going to still be up under her. But like there are also like if I'm literally traveling back in time, there are all these dangers and such that present themselves too. And, and so I think like when it comes to the racial history of the country, perspective is important. I think that, you know, that comment is really apt where for white folks, it's a privilege, which I think should translate into a deep responsibility for black folks. It might be like time traveling where it's some stuff that feel good, but it also is going to be some booby traps. Yeah. Oh, go ahead, Rich. Go ahead. Well, one of the touching upon my nostalgia for Americana that once existed, I, I, I loved road trips, and that was part of what I was doing prior to this project. And I had I I loved driving on Route sixty six, and had this vision of what it was like. I remember being on it in the backseat of, of my family's Pontiac Bonneville in 1965, before the invention of seatbelts. And I thought it was great. And I had this sweet spot in my heart. But as I was pursuing this project, I realized how if I were Black, I wouldn't have had those fond memories. And one of the places that... I photographed was in Klein's Corner, New Mexico, where six black men died in a, a car accident because they had to drive, I think it was like 325 miles to to get to Albuquerque, and they didn't make it. Albuquerque was a place where they could find lodging, but in so much of Route 66, black people were not allowed in restaurants and in hotels. And these guys perished because of that. And I, I, I had, prior to photographing Klein's Corner, I photographed a number of places on Route 66 where you'd see signs on these old hotels that say American owned. And I even in my naivete, I could smell what that was all about. And it's, you know, it's, you know, that you walk in and you'll be seeing a white person, theoretically. And 
the that just offends my my sensibilities that you, that you can advertise such a thing is just wrong it's it's making people second class citizens again and but it goes under most people's radar that's why i don't want to be overly nostalgic anymore i want to view it like like it was and really think about the implications of our our culture you know the that's i'll brian you are so you you know you bring knowledge i i'm just like <laughs> talking emotions so i know it 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 all makes a lot of sense though and it all ties back to one another i think because as we talk about nostalgia in kind of like you said rich where it's like you know you want to feel good about these things that aren't necessarily meant to feel good because they were not feel good situations. So it's kind of like the saying that's been going around for the past couple of years of BFFR that we love to use, which is be fucking for real <laughs> and call it what it is. Because huh? I feel like it's very similar. And we talk a lot about mental health on our show and traumas and therapy and all those types of things. It's kind of similar where you have to deal with those things of the past for what they are in order to move on in the future. So if we mm -hmm. want this feel-good nostalgia, we have to deal with the uncomfortableness that came before it. Like, yes. it, there is no skipping that. And a lot of people, I feel like a lot of people are in their skipping mood where they're like, yes, all right, we're going to touch this. We're going to say, yes, it happened. All right. Gotcha. You got us. <laughs> and like, okay, now let's move on. And it's like, it's not that easy. It is a journey and something that we're all going to have to be like, we are all going to walk through hand in hand in this journey, no matter how hard it is so that we can get to this quote unquote peaceful nostalgia. At least that's that. That's how I view it. Good. Yeah, well, I have. I have. I could go, but I, I we can go to some to some other questions if y'all if y'all want to, because I feel like I might ramble for like, <laughs> you know, another good four minutes. No, no, this I, I is like good. This when is... you ramble, Brian. I always yeah. learn stuff when you ramble. Rich, I appreciate it. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Rich. But but so I was just going I was thinking as as I was just listening, you know, there's scholars, you know, I don't, you know, maybe this is turning people off immediately, but like Scott, like sociologists do some thinking around the role that ignorance plays in the perpetuation and like amplification of of systemic racism of the ways that policies and institutional practices and the decisions of people the influences and impacts that those have on real people real populations and you know it's one thinker charles mills i think i think the language that he uses the epistemology of ignorance which is like the way that you exist in the world and make sense of the world and move through the world depends on you either willfully not looking for, you know, metaphorically or literally, or in some other way, not having to be aware. And it's, you know, it's a tricky thing to talk to some white folks using that language because you're going to turn off folks who really are really trying and I really want to be and you're going to turn off the folks who do hold that are and who are talking about American owned it, it's so many folks you because it, ignorance carries with it like a certain weight it has a certain connotation it means I mean in general it means you don't know something ignorance you don't know something maybe that you should and I think some folks and this is a part of of how whiteness works. And by that, I just mean like one thing that you will commonly hear or experience if if you are talking to somebody who is white and you talking about ignorance or I think white mediocrity, which is a term that you hear also stirs privilege, stirs up this reaction. It they they it, it they, they internalize and individualize it and immediately become defensive. Which is the point? This is like, this is the thing. This is the thing that we're talking about, where 
we can't have a critical conversation because your feelings got hurt because of the words we used. Preach. No, <laughs> because I've seen it happen like firsthand and I'm like, is this, is this real right now? And actually Sam and I recently went to see American fiction, the movie, it has Issa Rae, Tracy Ellis, Sterling K. Brown, a lot of other people that I can't think of their names right now, but they're all amazing. And there was this scene in the movie, spoiler alert, where they're trying to, so kind of the synopsis is the main character of the movie. He's written, like, you know, he's kind of like, he's a black scholar. He's written all these like really critical thinking books and things, but not necessarily super entertaining or for the pleasing of certain audiences. And so he gets drunk one night and decides to write this book. That's just like completely just like it's bad. And, but it's the typical way in the way that is most appetizing for a lot of white people to take in black culture or black stories. And out of a joke, he submits it and everybody wants to pick it up. All of these publishers want to pick it up. And it just kind of goes down this rabbit hole of like, are y'all serious right now? Like, you're also proving my point too. Um, and then, so there's a specific scene where this this book is now up for an award. And they're voting. And so there's three white people and two black people who are voting to figure out which book is going to win the award, essentially. And the two black people are like, this book is trash. This does not deserve any type of recognition. It does not represent us accurately. All of these things. And the three white people are like, no, we found it so profound and of this time and it's needed right now and blah, 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 all these things. And so ultimately... They vote for the book to win. And one of the characters, one of the women, she's, she ends it with, um, she's like, I just think it's really important to amplify Black voices right now. When it's li literally on one side, there's the two Black people who are telling you this is awful. This does not deserve any type of hype that y'all are trying to give it. And on the other side is the white people who are like, yes, this is it. We've decided that this is the one right here. And it's, again... It just goes back into the, the whole conversation that you were just talking about, where it's like making it palatable, if you will. It feels so... It, so many things. Look, <laughs> my ancestors were not even on the plantation, and it pisses me off Like for anyone whose ancestors were and still have to surround them, like who have to be a part of a society that continuously gaslights them and tells them like what happened like what as if you know what happened oh my god i don't even know where i was oh well, oh well oh, oh okay okay so i was just thinking about this real housewives of beverly hills which i had to stop watching because it was just too much but there this season a lot has been said about this girl named dorit who and this is actually kind of awkward because she's Jewish. And there's this thing with Jewish people where it's like, I was oppressed, so I don't have to think about anything. I am the victim. I, like, Israel is owed to me. And, like, all of this, like, propaganda that they have been fed, too, because, like, I guess the people of power, that's all they want to do is just force stuff in our mouth and we just like eat it. But it reminds me of this quote that I posted on Instagram and it's literally just like someone saying, like a journalist, like in journalism school, they were told, like what the professor told them as a journalist, and this is something that when you say as a journalist, I think it's really just as a critical thinker. And it's something that like we as people of any minority have that switch goes off when you are oppressed and you just have critical thinking all of a sudden because you have to survive. And that just is a part of evolution. But the quote is, if the media, if you turn on the news and it's, they're saying it's raining, it's your job as the journalist or as the critical thinker in this case to like look outside and determine if there's like rain, you know what I mean? Like, are you going to put the rain jacket on based on like 
turning the TV on and like, just like, you know what I mean? We regurgitate like what has been told to us instead of looking around, like being curious, doing that research, squinting and like, like what y'all have done with this book and like really taking it in for what it is feels like very similar to what we've been saying this entire interview, but just kind of went off in my mind and wanted to say that. But I'm thankful for people of all types, all, all like, not to single out any Jewish person, you know what I mean? Like not trying to, but I've just noticed this pattern where because you're oppressed in this one area of your life, like there's this lack of like seeing things from an intersectional lens where you can also recognize that someone else you're privileged in another aspect and like sit your ass down and like, you know what I mean? <laughs> well, w- one thing, one thing I'll reach you. Go ahead. I, 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 as the one Jew in the room, I, I'm assuming, Please. I don't know. I, <laughs> I, I grew up knowing about the oppression that my ancestors left in Europe, but I grew up knowing that it was different than what anybody else here is experiencing and that I, if I can feel that pain, it doesn't mean that I understand that I know the pain of the black people that I know. I don't, I, I have no idea what it's like to be black in America. I can only try and empathize by what I, what I've heard and take it to a different place, an entirely different place. And it's incumbent upon me, if I really care, to educate myself and learn so I can understand, well, the ramifications of redlining still exist all over. And, you know, you can, I, my, the fact that my ancestors fled anti-Semitism doesn't give me any insight into what it's like to be black. You know, I walk into a room and uh, for the most part, people just figure another white guy walked in the room. But if a black person walked in the room, it's usually evident, especially in, you know, where, where, whites are in the majority which is most of what i i live in you know and i i wish it were otherwise but there did i did i put my foot in my mouth again or anything I did first, and you were very graceful with your response because I just like completely came at not you necessarily, but you in a way because you are (laughs) the only person that's Jewish in this. I I think it was it was it was good of you to bring it up, you know, and whatever discomfort lingered inside me was because I know that you're right. So. if, if I can slide in real quick, I, I just, this is reaching back a little bit, but it is continuing the conversation from where we are. In my experience, being in college classrooms and being in other spaces, when it comes to the history, especially of Black Americans, of Black folks in the U.S., white people just don't have no idea. Like, they don't know. They don't understand. I can tell 25 stories Each of them would take three or four minutes about racism that I have experienced in the last 13 months. I'm reaching back to last year. I was on sabbatical, blah, blah, blah. And and so to this point about critical thinking, I think you are right. Existing in the U.S. as a black person and navigating American society, you got to be creative. You got to be critical. You got to be resilient. Some people don't like to use that word. You got to be a lot of things. I'm sorry. I just have lived. I ain't making nothing up. I'm not interpreting nothing. I'm just remembering what has happened to me. And in order for 
And it's the same way for me when it comes to gender histories and the experiences of women. Everybody who sits in a position of power or privilege, it applies in some direction. And that the the it being in order to understand, you got to do something. You got to it ain't just you got to try. No, it got to be more specific. You got to go read something. You got to go talk to somebody. You got to learn something. You got to be uncomfortable. You have to do something. Privilege, the other side of it, from my perspective, is responsibility. If I finish the sentence, it's a responsibility to do something about in the area of your privilege, which is why I, I appreciate that. You know, I think this project and Rich's approach and I'm hearing how y'all are kind of processing all of the kind of moving parts of it. I think it's, you know, a book ain't going a book ain't no revolution. A book is not going to change nothing about systemic racism in American society. It probably ain't going to change too many people's minds about racism in American society. I, Rich, I don't know if that's your expectation, but it ain't quite mine. You uh, said newsflash. <laughs> but 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 I do think that for me it sits as a powerful packet of proof, which I know was your goal, Rich. Again, we didn't draw the pictures, we didn't paint them, and we didn't make up the histories. What folks do with them, I think, what folks do with them, emphasis on the do, you know, is is up to them. But I mean, no, to your point, like, there are still going to be people who look at this book and will say, no, that's not real. Like, even with all of the proof <laughs> sitting in 100%. front of them, because You're we've seen it happen right. time yeah. and time again. There's always going to be that percentage where it's like... Y'all are not the brightest apples from the tree, but okay. <laughs> like, all right. Even, even, the proof is in the pudding, but not to you. Have a nice day. No, not have a nice day because still, like, I don't know. I'm, I'm still one of those people where it's like, okay, how can I reframe this for you to understand yet again? But again, that is also not my job to do. But it almost feels like it is our job to do in a sense. I think that is a common black experience where you're like, no, 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 no. no. Let me explain something to you real quick. But no, I know we've, we've, and this is what we, we, y'all, we, we prefaced them before this interview happened that, yeah, we have interview questions, but screw them because we're just going to go with it as the conversation <laughs> flows. <laughs> but one thing I really did want to ask both of you is as we look towards the future, because um, we've talked a lot about the past and the present and now the future in this, how do you see the stories and the images in your book influencing the next generation of activists and artists and thought leaders because this is going to touch people like i know i just talked about the people who are going to be like no this is fake but there are going to be people like us who are like oh my gosh like we cannot like it, it made me think about this experience that sam and i uh had in college where we whenever we'd go on spring break we found plant like there the evident there was a plantation everywhere everywhere we went we were like we want to go visit the plantation because every time we visited it was a different story that they were telling about that plantation in that location and Samra actually didn't go to, with me to this one but there's one in Louisiana where Beyonce infamously shot her deja vu video um and I can't, I can't even think of the name of it off the top of my head. I'll link it in the show notes. But as I was there, it, it's just a different type of feeling when you know it happened and you know it exists and being there in the place. And it really did change my mind on things in, just in that one trip. And then also looking and being like, people are still having weddings at plantations also, though which is a whole other problematic rabbit hole type of thing that as I've gotten older, I'm thought more and more like, Oh yeah, that is kind of problematic and inappropriate. But with all of that, like where, do, where do you look towards the future in this for individuals who want to look towards the future in this? Well, I'll, I'll start. I I'm trying to view this as evidence the pictures that I'm making, I try and include as much detail as possible because I don't know what all the evidence is going to be, but I want to provide the the data that somebody in the future can look back at and say, yeah, well, this this was really what was going on and not deny, which is denial is, is a terrible 
promulgation of our sins. You know, it's, and the, there is just so much of it. The inequalities that existed when I was a child still exist, but they look different in most places, but they're still there. And I, I want to point that out that, and I want people to be able to look around themselves and see what history and what evidence they can find. I, I know early on in my project, one of the largest sections of it was theater entrances and the the idea that you could walk around and find segregated entrances that were not memorialized or commemorated in any way intrigued a number of people that saw the early work before before this became a really meaningful project with Brian it was just pictures and people saw oh wait that's that weird set of bricks is actually telling me something that I don't I didn't know and even in like in New Orleans it was there was one person in particular who took me around to show me the the segregated entrances that she had found and I'm glad that that motivated someone to look harder and I hope that this book will do that and and make it harder to deny this this living history is it is a living history I, I would just say you know the the truth is a big table and I think we all should have a seat at it and like in this book rich you did a type of truth telling in in both taking the photos all of the time and effort you put into that your method I'm referring to in the in the research that you did for the captions I did a kind of truth telling it ain't the same shape or sound as yours and the important point I think is that it don't need to be and if we extrapolate if we extrapolate that outward for me my hope is that this book is it stands as a part of or in part motivates a movement of and it is said a lot that maybe some people think is cliche but radical truth telling and for me a pragmatist radical means something specific it means irreverent it means i know some stuff might happen because i'm telling the truth and i'm cool with it and so you know, again, a book ain't no revolution. It ain't going to change the world. I think, Rich, we, we saying the same thing, I think. And I would just emphasize, you know, at least one of my bigger goals is that at the very least, it can be a part of a moment of radical truth telling, which we do. We are getting in the academy and outside of. Maybe I have to think about that last part a little bit more. But but that's what I would say. I would say I would say truth telling about you know, whether it's our racial history or the other parts of our history that need to be dealt with, you know, as well. You guys have said that this book is art, and I believe that it is. And art is revolution. And I just want to leave you guys with that, because what you've done here is not just a book. It really isn't. And I think you guys mentioned that, or Amani did in the foreword, where, you know, you two, the photographer and the journal and the and the writer coming together. You, if it's done in earnest, and which you both had did that, you both did that. It becomes something more than each of the things separately. You know, a picture is worth mm -hmm. a thousand words. Then you added words. And like together, I mean, that's a story. It's like a blanket that's being weaved and it is has become art. I feel like walking through the pages of these books is like walking through an art museum. And it's just mm. truly beautiful. And I think it also reminded me something you said, Rich, was that or maybe it was maybe it was you, Brian, actually, that said it. But 
it reminded me of something that's like now escaping me. I can't even think of it. But I did, I did write down truth is a big table and we all deserve a seat. That's definitely something I'm leaving here with. And I think that's, Mm -hmm. you know, we hear a lot about like, let's make our own table. And I do think that that is one way to do it. And I think that situationally that does make sense but also I don't know isolation is not courageous to me so all of us coming together is way more powerful than us just like separating off to do our own thing like we have our own issues within our own community like it's not like things are just gonna be like solved if we all just go by ourselves because we don't fight amongst ourselves just like we always do so I just, I, I really like, I really like that. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm grateful yeah. that we've had different viewpoints and, and different observations. And I, I hope that this, the book will prompt more people to gather and c- have conversations, especially with people who aren't just like them you know, and have opposing views, perhaps. I mean, that's where it's really hard. It's when I'm walking up to somebody who I know has a completely different take on life and try and have a reasonable interaction, you know. So, and I I learn from listening, not from closing my mind. Yeah, I think that's right, that listening portion, that communication that I think a lot of people in any type of scenario, but especially this one, leave out a lot is the listening part of it and the comprehension that comes after the listening. (laughs) But with that, we want to thank you both again so much for coming on the show today and for sharing this body of work with us and the world, not to be sound cheesy. But before we wrap up, just a couple things that we like to do with our guests as we are a reading and bite-sized book club podcast is we'd love to know any books that are on your list or books that you want to shout out to our audience for them to check out. And also if there are any upcoming projects that either of you are working on that our readers and fans can check out. Brian, do you want to go? I'll just, I, would, I would say South to America by Imani Perry would be a recommendation how the word is passed by Clint Smith would be a recommendation. And and then just thirdly, I would say, like read some memoir, like read some, read some firsthand accounts of people who don't have the same biography as you. So, you know, Kiese Lehman, who I mentioned earlier, he wrote a book called Heavy. It's his memoir. I think Thick and other essays by Tracy McMillan Cottom. Those are a handful that I would that I'd say. You you just tapped into something in me. Sam Rhodes and our audience knows I love a good memoir. So I will definitely be checking those out. Check out Heavy by Kiese Lehman. Check that out. It's getting added to my very, very long to be read list, but it's going on there. <laughs> and then what about you, Rich? Well, I'm going to reread Brian Stevenson's Just Mercy. When I read it a couple of years ago, I I don't think I had as much comprehension as I might have now. And I had started reading a book called The Color of Law, which I think is really insightful. It's a kind of, for my taste, it's dry, but it's important information. It gave me insight into the infrastructure that perpetuates inequality and I'm also interested in, I think it's called on the courthouse lawn, which, well, anyhow, those are the, those are the books that I'm either reading or miss or rereading. Perfect. So, and then also letting our audience know where they can find you all, where they can find you and get your updates on all of your future projects, as I know there will be many wonderful projects in your future. <laughs> well, I can be found at, I guess the easiest would, if not my Instagram, at Rich Frischman, the, I I guess, ghostsofsegregation.com is is a 
a website. Brian and I may develop something even more with that, right, Brian? I mean, yeah, yeah. Uh, that's the, Brian that's being the goal. A, a real educator, a professor at the University of Virginia, there's more, much more educational potential in this project now. And, and I, I always wanted this to be something that, that students studied, learned from, and I hope that we make that happen. Be Brian Foster, be B-R-I-A-N-F-O-S-T-E-R, pretty much across the board, bbrianfoster.com, Instagram. You know, if I, this is not, you just Google it and some stuff will come up, but this is not like a Google, I'm not like that kind of, you know, that's not me, but <laughs> B. Brian Foster will, will bring up everything that, that I have going on. We'll get your whole rap sheet. It's okay. But thank you so much again for coming on the show and sharing your words. Of course, all of you know, or if you're new here, hi. I should have done this at the beginning of the show. I always forget to do it. But you can find us everywhere at Read, And we will have all of the things that we've talked about today in today's episodes, all of the book uh, suggestions that we receive will be located in the show notes and also on our bookshop and Amazon storefronts. And with that, this has been another episode of She Well Read. I'm Alana. And I'm Sandra. Bye, everybody. Bye. It was great being with you. <laughs>